Hey everyone, welcome to Church Online. You know, for almost the entire year, we have been traveling verse by verse through the book of Mark. And in fact, after today, we only have four more Sundays in Mark. But last week, we ended with all of the disciples abandoning Jesus after he was arrested following the Last Supper. And at that final meal, they all pinky promised that they, that they wouldn't abandon him. And Peter emphatically said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same, but they all did deny him. Jesus was right. Jesus is always right. And I wonder if there's a cringe in your heart when I say that. An old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, we don't speak King James English anymore, so let me translate that a bit. You know, it, it means that there's something, something desperately wicked inside of us, something that naturally rebels against the Lord Jesus. And the Bible calls that sin. Sin hates surrendering to the Savior. It hates when he's right. And in today's passage, we see that by Mark's telling of two parallel stories. Let's begin in verse 53 where it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Mark's first story is Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, 70 religious leaders that were led by the high priest. And the second story follows Peter, the one who pledged to die for Jesus. And Mark strategically places these two stories side by side to let his readers know that these events are happening at the same time. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And so when the trial begins, it's clear that their intention is not to find truth or pursue justice. There is one objective, and that is to put Jesus to death. The religious leaders had been plotting and waiting for this opportunity. And now that it was finally here, it was time to capitalize on it. But there was a huge problem. The prosecution's witnesses couldn't get their lies straight. And so the high priest decides to step in and, and, and with the attitude of, you know what, sometimes if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. And so verse 60 says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, that being Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Remember, one of the things the false witnesses brought up about Jesus was that he was saying that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. And that was actually a serious charge at this time. And Jesus did say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now in proper context, he was referring to his own body as the temple and the resurrection as the rebuilding. Nevertheless, the high priest suddenly got an idea. 
The rebuilding of the temple fit the theological understanding of the future Messiah's responsibilities. This future Savior would one day come and restore the glory to Israel, which could likely include a temple renovation. And the high priest likely heard this in combination with other things that Jesus said, other messianic things, and, and, and therefore it, he put those things together and it's quite possible that he strategically thought, if I can get him to say that he's the Messiah in court, the case will be closed. That'll do the trick. And so it says that the high priest directly asked Jesus, are you the Christ or are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. For the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus publicly declares that he is the Messiah, something he was previously private about. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, some believe that the high priest tears his robe and, and, and condemns Jesus because he's claiming to be God. After all, the charge from the high priest is blasphemy. Blasphemy as in, how dare this man standing in front of me claim to be God? And while this interpretation, it, it could make sense, it also forces our modern and even hindsight understanding on this story. And what I mean is we can make this interpretation with accuracy because we are post-resurrection. We already know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is God in the flesh, but the high priest had no clue to him and even most of the Jews at this time. Their understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to be a great man, but not God. And that being the case, we got to ask, why does the high priest charge Jesus with blasphemy? Well, check this out. The actual use of the Hebrew word blasphemy means to dishonor God by diminishing his majesty or depriving him of rights to which he is entitled. It's not just using God's name in vain like we think today or even claiming to be God when you're not. But again, in their minds... The, the people, the, the priests, the Messiah wasn't God. So even when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, why charge him with blasphemy? Well, the charge of blasphemy came from the expanded use and, and, and definition of blasphemy that I just read. As they looked at this ordinary Jesus who was humble with no physical might or majesty and, 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 and claiming to be God's promised savior, the Messiah, the high priest would be thinking, how dare you claim your raggedy self as God's Messiah? Your appearance alone mocks God's majesty. Plus, God alone has the right to say who sits at God's right hand. You're not allowed to say that. To the high priest, Jesus making these decisions and statements that belonged only to God alone, that in itself was blasphemy. And before I move on, I, I want us to hold on to this more historic definition of blasphemy because I think it's helpful for us. In our day, we tend to limit blasphemy to using God's name in vain, which it is. 
We, or when we say God's name to express frustration or disgust or even attach it to four-letter words, and, and that is blasphemy. But I think there's a spiritual healthiness in considering the historic and expanded definition, even if the high priest at this time is incorrectly applying it to Jesus because Jesus is God. But once more, let me read the, the definition. Blasphemy is any time we dishonor him or dishonor God by diminishing his majesty or depriving him of his rights to which he is entitled. Thinking about that definition, I, I wonder how many of us are truly guilty of blasphemy. How often do we diminish his majesty by our words or our actions? How often do we dishonor him by taking things into our own hands when it rightly belongs, when those things rightly belong to him alone? Just some food for thought. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The response of the Sanhedrin here in this verse is connected to Jesus's messianic confession. You know, speaking of the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah said, and the spirit of the Lord of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by look at this, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You know, based on this prophecy, Jewish leaders believed the Messiah didn't need to see to discern things. And so in covering Jesus's face, they were mockingly saying, okay, Mr. Messiah, prove it. Bam, who hit you? But I believe that this violence also reveals something greater at work, sin. You know, this whole passage reveals two things. Number one, that Jesus is always right. Remember, the, he, he already predicted this trial to happen and the outcome. He had told his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus was right. Jesus is always right. But number two, this passage reveals that we hate when Jesus is right. Why? Because of our sin. You know, it's crazy because technically this all should have worked out differently according to what we find in the scriptures. Think about this spiritual equation. Jesus said in John 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And the apostle Paul told the Romans that, that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ or hearing the truth. Now, technically, according to, to, to these verses, what should have happened when Jesus declared himself as the savior of the world, as the Messiah, when he spoke truth, it's supposed to incite saving faith in their hearts and make them holy. But it doesn't. It stirred up hate instead. Why? Because of sin. Sin hates surrendering to the Savior. It hates when Jesus is right. And I believe the violent response of the religious leaders is really sin hating the Savior. But hate isn't always aggressive. 
You know, while the story of Jesus' trial is happening, Peter's story moves forward in the background. Verse 66 says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Like our first story, this story speaks the same truth. First off, it, it reminds us that Jesus is always right. Peter had passionately promised faithfulness, but Jesus said, truly I tell you this very night before the ro rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus is always right. And just like the Pharisees, Peter hates that too, but not with the same kind of hate. You know, according to the dictionary, hate can also mean to have a strong aversion to something or to find something very distasteful. The religious leaders violently hated Jesus. You know, I hate tomatoes, but that's, that's, that's not the same thing. I don't walk into Whole Foods. Well, I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods, so I don't go there anyways. But let's just say I don't walk into Walmart and start smashing tomatoes in the produce section saying prophesy because I hate tomatoes. My hate is more of an aversion, a turning away from a disgust of tomatoes. And as Peter experiences the reality that Jesus is always right, he hated that feeling. He was disgusted by it. It was distasteful to his soul. And he felt shame as he wept because Jesus was right about his unfaithfulness, his denial. And we, we, we all hate that shameful feeling that we get. But we must also realize that though Peter's hate is different, it's still the byproduct of sin because sin caused Peter to pridefully reject the truth that Jesus had spoke about his future denial. And sin had caused Peter to deny Jesus the truth of God. Therefore, in both stories, the same truth is presented. Number one, Jesus is always right. And number two, because of sin, we hate that. And as we begin to wrap up, let me ask, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the same sin that dwelled in the Pharisees, that dwelled in Peter, dwells in us today. And if you think about it, this matters because we are all truly guilty of blasphemy. Remember, blasphemy is any time we dishonor God by diminishing his majesty or depriving him of rights to which he is entitled. Think about this with me. Jesus is God. Jesus is always right. And he speaks to us just like he spoke to the Pharisees and to Peter. But we don't always listen. And when that happens, we got to realize this. We got to realize that we dishonor him and diminish his majesty. And according to the definition that is given 
that's a form of blasphemy. And I know that sounds extreme, but let me press into this idea a little bit deeper and hopefully you, you get what I'm saying. Jesus is our creator. That means that he has the right to instruct his creation. Additionally, he is our Lord. He is entitled to be our master. Therefore, when we refuse to obey him and make decisions on our own, when we become the Lord of our own lives, we deprive him of his rights. My friends, that's blasphemy. And that's bad news for us. It's bad news because if nothing changes, we're going to hate discovering Jesus is right, especially when we too see him seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus said that, he's describing part of a future eternal judgment. One day that event is going to happen. Once again, Jesus is going to be right. And if at that moment he finds us living a blasphemous life, we're going to hate the future consequences of that day of judgment. We find a little bit about what that day is going to look like in Revelation chapter 20, where it says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, was not saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, was thrown into the lake of fire. That is bad news. But here's some good news. Here's some gospel. Jesus died for blasphemers. You know, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he gave Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know what whoever means? It means whoever, including blasphemers. According to the prophet Isaiah, speaking on the Messiah once more, speaking of Jesus, he says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason Jesus allowed the Sanhedrin to condemn him is not because they were right. Jesus is right. He's not committing blasphemy. He's sacrificing at this moment his perfect life for our sins, even the sin of blasphemy. We have hated Jesus. Our sin is proof of that. And on the cross, all that sinful hate that belonged to us was laid on him so we could be forgiven. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the sin offering for our sin, for our blasphemies, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. These two stories matter to us because 
All of us need to understand three things. Number one, Jesus is always right. Number two, our sin hates that. But number three, Jesus saves us from our sin. And this good news isn't just for the unbeliever, just for the person who's never put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because in our passage, Peter already trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. In our in, in this story, Mark is writing to the church, to Christians. This is good news for Christians too, because right now as followers of Jesus, there are times where we're not listening to Jesus either, even though we know he's always right. Let's look at that idea in, in a very practical way. And let me start this way. Uh, when we don't drink water, what happens? We get dehydrated. And so how do you fix that? You drink water, very practical. When you only eat junk food, what happens? You become unhealthy because your body lacks nutrition. How do you fix that? You make better food choices, very practical. Young people who may be watching this, when you don't study or turn in your homework, what happens? You get a bad grade, how do you fix that? You do your schoolwork, that's very practical. Now, if Jesus is always right, but we never listen to him, what's going to happen? Our life's gonna fall apart. We will continue in brokenness and spiritual defeat. And so how do we fix that? Well, we obey the one who is always right. It's very practical. You know, for some reason, we as Christians are surprised when we remain in brokenness and yet we don't listen to Jesus. I mean, look at, look at some of the things God's word tells us. If, if you lack peace, what should you do? Well, what does Jesus say? Isaiah 26 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If you struggle with consistently making sinful choices, what should you do? Well, what does Jesus say to do? Psalm 119 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you are overwhelmed with anxiety, what does Jesus say you should do? Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious. Do not be worried about anything, but in everything, be in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Husbands, if you want a good marriage, what should you do? What does Jesus say? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My church family, if you want to experience life the way that God intended it to be, abundantly fruitful, what should you do? What does Jesus say we should do? He says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is very practical stuff. It's understanding that Jesus is always right and responding not with hate, but with obedience. But you may be asking, what about that sin that we all still have hanging around, hanging on to our flesh that wants us to hate Jesus? What do we do about that? Well, Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In a few weeks, there's a couple of people in our church that are going to be running marathons. You know, Pastor John is, is going to be running his first. And I remember my first marathon. I knew the weather was supposed to be cold early on in the morning, but was going to heat up later. Therefore, what did I do? I wore a throwaway sweater. And around mile three, when it began to heat up, do you know what I did with that sweater? 
I took it off and I threw it aside and I never looked back. As a Christian, what do you do when you have sin that tries to trip you up? Choose to throw it aside and never look back. And then keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep running towards his voice. So I'm going to close uh, with this. Today is a good day to come to Jesus. It's time to stop playing with that sin. It's time to stop rejecting what Jesus says. You know he's right. He's always right. And today, I want you to listen to his word. Today, he says, come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you need Jesus to refresh your life today, even if you have rejected him time and time again, today he invites you to come. Come to him. Come to the altar. He suffered so that you could be saved. He was condemned so that you could live. Today is a good day to come to Jesus. So how do we do that? We'll look once more at verse 54. It says, And Peter had followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Notice two things. It says that Peter followed at a distance. Don't live your faith like that. Following Jesus from a distance will eventually result in denying Jesus. When we don't believe Jesus is always right, we follow from a distance. But number two, notice that Peter was alone in a world that hated Jesus. That also is a recipe for failure. But look what happens after the resurrection. John 21 says, And after this, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to them, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Notice a little detail here. Peter is not alone anymore. But then as they were on the water, Jesus calls out to them. And it says that John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And then he swam towards Jesus. Peter closed the distance between himself and Jesus. And then he found restoration. Today, some of you need to close the distance between you and Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. But before I do, please don't miss the impact of community that, that Peter experienced. When you come to Jesus, please know that you are called into a family, an interdependent community known as the church. And one way that we live that out here at the River Church is through life groups. In life groups, you learn to love the Bible, to learn what Jesus says so that you can obey him. And in life groups, you won't have to be alone anymore. You'll find joy as you build community by living in relationship with God and one another. Let me encourage you to join a life group and find out that Jesus is right about community. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your salvation today. Forgive us for all the times that we've set ourselves up as God when you alone are the master. You have the right to be Lord over our lives. And so forgive us for our sins, for our blasphemy. Today, we surrender to you. Please save us. 
Help us to listen to your voice so that we can find eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for Church Online. If this was your first time, please fill out a Connect card. We'd love to say hi to you and even send you a gift. Also, if you have any prayer requests, would like to know more about the River Church, or you have decided to follow Jesus today, we want to hear from you. And there's an easy way to do that on our website, riverchurchct.com, where you can text the keyword TRC Connect to 94,000. God bless you. Have a great day.